Hello, and a very warm welcome to the first episode of the BV podcast and a glimpse of rural Dorset life in the early spring month of February 2024. I'm Jenny Devitt. And hello from me, Terry Bennett. And in this episode, we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor. Simon Hoare MP discusses the issue of the country's security. Pat Osborne of the North Dorset Labour Party bemoans the erosion of democratic rights under various legislation introduced by the current government. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party calls for politicians to be honest and make telling the truth their belated New Year's resolution. While the North Dorset Lib Dems' Gary Jackson calls for more help for the unseen, unsung and unjustly treated carers. And I talked to Harriet Green, the new manager of Shaftesbury Lido, or is it Lido, about the attractions, or otherwise, of cold water swimming. And Jane Adams reveals the life of the secretive polecat. But we start, as ever, by hearing from our editor, Laura Hitchcock. Well, that was a quick three weeks since I was last here, although at the same time I suspect we have just completed the longest January ever in the history of ever. But here we are, out the other side at last, and breathing in those faint, fresh scents of spring that February brings. My brain turned repeatedly this week to the phrase, don't get it right, get it written. It's a great mental kick when I'm dithering over how to make the first sentence flow. It really doesn't matter, just write something. It'll always work itself out as I go, and then I can always come back and fix the start once I know where I finished. The funny thing is, I learnt the phrase from a journalist friend of mine who, as a young graduate, worked in a newsroom. The old editor would stand in the doorway and shout the phrase across a noisy room at people. He apparently had an uncanny knack for spotting the procrastinators. A man who I've never met, whose name I don't even know, helps me on a weekly basis. It made me wonder, what small parts of me have I left entirely unknowingly with others? And the next thought is obviously that if there are some... I hope it's my wits and my brains and not just the time I fired a hunk of lobster at one of the world's greatest winemakers. This month, for a magazine that doesn't do much sport, and actually the one sport discipline we do cover, Equestrian, is on a winter break, we've come over all sporty. Quite by accident, obviously, because if you think we have a smartly themed plan for each month, then quite frankly, you're in for a little disappointment. We have some incredible rugby with an ex-All Black, Shaftesbury Ice Mile swimmers that made my jaw clench, a good news golf story, and a good news, bad news balance of community leisure centres. Sport aside, not to brag, but there's some absolute peaches in this issue. We are so lucky to have the writers that we do. Andrew Livingston's slurry shuffle is unmissable, so make sure you go as far as farming. And I'm starting to suspect that Barry Cuff, picking the then images for then and now, just for the delight of where he's making Courtney go to go and get the now version. Last month it was the middle of the A357. This month it's actually a roundabout. And the reader's photography, but I won't bang on about that again. Just come and see it. Your letters. In the January issue, editor Laura wrote about the small things she's found joy in to lighten the very long grey January. Others were keen to take up her invitation to join in. Like Joyce Green from Shaftesbury, who says, I was touched by Laura's list of small joys. It's a wonderful reminder of how the simplest things can lift our spirits during the gloomy winter months. For me, it's that snappy, crisp air during an early morning walk and the steamy warmth of a home-cooked meal. Let's all share and celebrate these moments of happiness. Nan Bellingham of Winborne writes as follows. I was charmed by Laura's list and felt compelled to add my own everyday delights. How about the smell and that first sip of the first coffee of the day? 
the satisfaction of solving a difficult crossword puzzle and the unexpected find of a forgotten £10 note folded into an unused handbag. It's these small surprises that brighten our days. And Hilary Pierce from Blandford writes, Laura's letter resonated with me, especially her appreciation of the simple pleasures of winter. For me, it's the, sadly rare this year, frost patterns on the garden, the chilly silence of an up-before-the-sun morning, and the weight of a warm blanket with a good book. All things to cherish, even in the darkest of Januarys. And from Ginny Baker in Shaftesbury comes this letter. Can I add a few things to Laura's list that I've noticed this weekend? Realising that accidentally overcooking last night means there's no need to even think about dinner tonight because leftovers. That, yes, I did get another jar of coffee. It's right there, comfortingly where it should be, and we were not, in fact, coffeeless. That pom-pom bear crisps are not just for six-year-olds. Apparently, I like them too. Knowing all the words to Maui's rap in Moana. Sleepy bedtime hugs. Councillor Pauline Badstone, who's the Secretary of Stir Action, wrote in in response to the lack of sparkle in stir. Yes, we totally agree, she says, that the battery-operated lights do not give the degree of sparkle we'd wish. But this year it was the best we could do. It's not as simple as your correspondent suggests to access the necessary mains electricity. That requires safe and accessible electric sockets, and increasingly the flats above the shops are independently occupied, nothing to do with the business below, so we cannot just use their supply and put wires through their windows. We're trying to find a way around this for as many trees as we can, but it's not straightforward. The Christmas trees in Stir are nothing to do with the town council. The businesses buy their own little trees, and Stir Action pays for lights where needed, and for fitters to put them up and take them down. The big tree is paid for by sponsors, organised through Stir Action and Stir Biz. Stir Action put well over £3,000 into the Stir Sparkle event this year, and we'll do our utmost to make it sparklier next year. But sadly, do not expect every small tree to be as sparkly as we'd all wish. If your correspondent has an answer, please come and show us. We're all volunteers and would appreciate the help. Tom Hockett of Sherburn writes on Mr Loder and the Post Office. In January's BV, Chris Loder MP criticised Lib Dem leader Sir Ed Davey over his handling of the Horizon Post Office scandal and declared he had questions to answer, mirroring sentiments in the broader Tory media landscape. It's important to note that Sir Ed Davey served as Postal Services Minister for just 21 months, from May 2010 to February 2012. During the two decades that spanned the wrongful convictions of numerous sub-postmasters, starting with Mr Bates' case in 2003, up to the 2024 ITV drama, a total of six Labour and nine Conservative Postal Services Ministers were in office, yet none addressed the issue. Chris Loder's focus on Sir Ed Davies' role, without acknowledging the inaction of the numerous other ministers from both the Labour and Conservative parties, seems to lack a broader perspective. A more balanced view that considers the collective oversight over the years might lead to more constructive discussions rather than singling out individuals with a gleeful, pointy finger. One correspondent who preferred to withhold their name and address wrote in about Robert Cowley and said... What a fascinating article this month's Dorset Iron Discs turned into. 
I started thinking I knew about Robert the Plumber. I did not know he'd graduated from Cambridge and chosen to return to Sturminster to work in the family firm. I was unaware of his huge involvement in the old market site development. I'm a blow-in. We arrived in 1996. And I certainly wasn't aware that the exchange is in a sticky situation right now. We cannot let such a brilliant community resource vanish, not just for Sturminster, but for the much wider community. Where's the next nearest 300-seat theatre venue? Is it time to begin rallying the troops once again? On Sherborne West, has Sherborne Council gone mad? In its response to the Sherborne West development proposal, they have said they're concerned about the infrastructure stress created by 2,400 extra cars, and to this end they intend civilising the A30, bringing it down to a single carriageway to reduce the potential for speeding. You're going to knowingly add 2.5k cars to our town and then narrow the main arterial route through it at one of the busiest junctions? That's from Benedict Rose of Sherborne. And finally, Bill Graves near Blandford wrote in to say that was a terrific article from Rupert Hardy on the Barbary Pirates. A long read, but definitely worth it. I had no idea they'd struck so close to home. The additional footnote on the Wolfgang brothers and their abduction was also a fascinating little rabbit hole for me to wander down. The whole collection of engravings is well worth taking the time to browse through. Thank you. And now let's hear from our politicians. MP Simon Hoare first. While there are always many issues that generate heated debate among friend and family, and sometimes between Member of Parliament and constituent, although of course rarely in North Dorset, I believe that one thing that will unite most people is the issue of security. Like many words, security manifests itself in many ways. It is a good catch-all word, and I set out below the issues of security that I think will be important both this year and in the future. It's often said that the first duty of government is the security of the country. That's a long-established rule. There's little point having good public services, etc., if one cannot defend them. We live in an increasingly insecure world, as we know the Middle East and Ukraine underscore that, along with a myriad range of international rows, wars and skirmishes. So our policies on defence are important to provide both that security umbrella at home, but also the opportunity to act overseas alone or in concert with others to defend our interests, our values and mankind. Increasingly, environmental security is pivotal. Clean air, clean water are the obvious ones, but the insecurity occasioned by climate change is now as much a security issue as it is an environmental one. The potential for our fellow human beings forced to flee uninhabitable portions of the planet creates in great part the problems and tensions caused across Europe by people fleeing their homelands. As above, global insecurity and the displacement of peoples as a result of warfare and territorial struggle adds to this problem. Covid and disruption to the international trade in the Red Sea recently illustrates to us once again the importance of food security. Of course there is a place for rewilding and similar projects, but these should be focused on land which is unproductive for food production. A nation which cannot feed itself is indeed too vulnerable, so we must focus on sustainable, environmentally neutral farming and food production. We cannot afford not to. Russia's unwarranted invasion of Ukraine highlighted our high-risk and fragile reliance on foreign energy sources, 
We cannot afford financially or morally to be in a position where we are reliant upon overseas fuels, even when they have to be sourced from an enemy, and where the purchase of the oil or gas merely adds to the aggressor's war chest. That is why I have supported consistently the drive towards carbon-neutral UK-generated energy, as well as accepting the realism, realism that, as industry and domestic life transitions to net zero, oil and gas will continue to be required. Given that fact, and it is a fact, I would prefer it to be from low transport miles UK sources, which of course also protects UK jobs. For some, an uncomfortable balancing act, but not for me. Pragmatic realism has always been my hallmark. Economic security at home for all of us is the most immediate. The falling rate of inflation and the easing of interest rate pressures help us all to feel a little more secure. The reduction in national insurance contributions hitting pay packets, even as I'm reading, is a help, as is the promise of tax reductions in the budget. These changes, if any, will not be delivered as a result of ideological purity by the Chancellor, but with the understanding that household financial security is important and where reductions can be afforded sustainably. They will be delivered. Our country and the entire world has come through some incredibly choppy waters. I will believe that we will not only have weathered those storms, but come out stronger and more resilient as a result. We will keep all of the elements of security to the forefront of all of our policies. I, as your Member of Parliament, owe that to you. And I will play my part in delivering on that agenda for all of us in North Dorset. These acts make a bonfire of our rights. Pat Osborne of the North Dorset Labour Party. Train drivers are being forced to strike again this month as part of a long-running dispute over pay and conditions. Regrettably, many people's travel plans will be disrupted as a result. Under the recent strikes, brackets, Minimum Service Levels Act 2023, train operators are legally allowed to force striking workers back to work to provide a minimum service level, an MSL, that the industry has set at 40% of the normal timetable. However, none of the rail companies are exercising these powers, despite ministers making it clear that they were expected to do so. The reason for this is an understanding that to do so would lead to worse industrial relations with their employees, protracting the dispute and increasing the chance of further disruption. Indeed, an attempt by one train company, LNER, to enforce MSLs was met by ASLEF, the train drivers' union, calling five additional strikes. Needless to say, LNER withdrew its plans. It's clear that MSLs, which were applicable to health, fire and rescue, education, nuclear energy and border security, as well as transport services, were intended to fan the flames of chaos rather than dampen disputes so that industrial relations might be weaponised for political gain. The trade union movement has slammed the legislation as a threat to both industrial relations and the right to strike. The Labour Party has committed to repealing the Act immediately on forming a new government. While it seems that the plan has backfired for now, we can be assured that the Tories will not stop there. Indeed, the Strikes Minimum Service Level Act 2023, the Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Act 2022 and the Public Order Act 2022, when taken together, represent a veritable bonfire of many of our rights to peaceful protest, fundamental pillars of a functioning and stable liberal democracy. And now... 
Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party has this to say. They say there's no such thing as an honest politician, but that's an oversimplification. Some politicians are genuinely driven to do their absolute best for all their constituents, particularly the less fortunate ones, and often they do so at great personal cost to their private lives. But unfortunately, there are others all too willing to accept donations or favours from corporate businesses, and in return, they lobby government on behalf of those businesses. The gambling industry, for example, uses this tactic to successfully influence politicians, as do the fossil fuel companies. Polls show that the majority of UK citizens now accept the need for urgent environmental action. So the fossil fuel industry has changed tack. It now promotes climate delay with the message, yes, of course the climate is changing, but it's fine. We still have time, so we can all relax and just carry on burning fossil fuels for a bit yet. It's what we all want to hear, isn't it? That things aren't as bad as they seem and we don't have to change our lifestyles too much seductive and destructive. Try telling those people whose homes and businesses have already been flooded twice this winter that we don't have to take urgent action. Moving on to New Year's resolutions, here's one I wish all politicians would adopt. Tell the truth. Don't tell us you're committed to protecting the environment and then abandon it as green crap. Don't tell us you've an oven-ready Brexit deal when you haven't. Don't tell us you're building 40 new hospitals when you aren't. Don't tell us that Rwanda is safe to send asylum seekers to whilst granting asylum to Rwandans fleeing persecution from their own government. Don't tell us you're on track to reach net zero by 2050 when your climate change committee clearly states that you are not. Don't tell us more drilling in the North Sea will ensure the UK's energy supply when most of the oil and gas will be sold on the global market. Don't tell us the drop in inflation is thanks to your policies when the real cause is a global drop in prices. We need honest politicians now, do we not? More than ever. And finally we hear from the North Dorset Lib Dems, Gary Jackson. Caring for the people we love should be something to rejoice about. But while caring is love, it also needs effort, tending towards work, and is mostly unpaid. People in North Dorset, as everywhere in the UK, provide unpaid care. At the 2021 census, there were approximately 5,500 people providing unpaid care in North Dorset. That's roughly one in 14 of us. Around 2,400 of us in North Dorset were caring for others unpaid for more than 50 hours per week. Consider then the numbers of people who are also contending with caring unpaid for people with diseases like dementia. A fellow constituent got in touch a couple of weeks ago to share their pain and frustration at the lack of support available to help care for his wife's increasing disease. For unpaid carers, Liberal Democrats support increasing the carer's allowance and making respite breaks a statutory right to ensure they receive the support they need. But this is only part of the answer to a much bigger challenge. For years, unpaid care has been part of the wider failure to come up with a solution for social care. The Dilnot report 
reported and recommended in 2011, and if media plaudits are the metric of success, then it did a great job. But that report ran into the sand as the coalition government gave way to the current government in 2015. The sorry observation is that all politicians have an idea about what could be done to solve the problem. It's just that none can work out how to get re-elected when they've done it. Just ask Theresa May. Local councils that pay for social care are starved of cash, which is taking social care backwards. So the longer we wait, the worse it will get, and the unjust situation we have now will become a broader and much more serious economic problem. Our population is ageing, with proportionately fewer workers over time paying tax to pay for the current care system. So families will pick up the burden by increasing unpaid care. This will in turn take more people out of the workforce, further reducing the tax being paid in a predictable, vicious circle. It has to be said that this caring burden also falls unequally to women. Our government has promised everything and achieved nothing for care and carers in England. They say this is a priority, but there is no will and no plan. England is 20 years behind others in our own country. Scotland has a working system that provides means-tested free personal care for over 65s who need it. This law was proposed by Scottish Liberal Democrats and passed in July 2002. In Scotland, you don't have to sell your house before you can have care. Deferred payment agreements avoid that prospect. Liberal Democrats prefer the Scottish solution for England too, and it's in our manifesto. Germany and the Netherlands began solving this problem more than a generation ago through compulsory social care insurance for all adults. So other solutions are available. And while we should learn from others, let's actually decide and act. Today, people are enslaved by the way we fail to deal with social care in England and it could happen to any of us. Liberal Democrats do have the will and we do have a plan to restore people's freedom and confidence, to enable people to decide and afford what they need rather than soldier on unseen, unsung and unvalued. Harriet Green is the new centre manager for Shaftesbury, Lido or Lido. Which one is it, Harriet? Well, I don't know. I think if you look at it grammatically, it's Lido, but I think the majority of people call it a Lido. We won't get too bound by no. that today, but you've only been here a very short period of time. Yes, I started in the new year. And what was your background before that? Uh, well, I've got my own open water coaching business. Um, I'm a lifeguard, aquafit instructor and swim teacher as well, and another job. But I started volunteering here when they opened it up for the cold water trial in November and December and absolutely loved it and we all got on so well and the opportunity came up. So Here you are. Yes. Now, a lot of people will be familiar with Lido's, Lido's in the summer months. Great places, fantastic for the children. Come and have a great splash around in the water. Maybe not so much this time of year, but that's probably stereotyping. There are people that, that swim all year round in cold water. Yes, it was always a thing, but it's become a lot more fashionable, popular and much more publicity about it since we had lockdown and people weren't able to go to the nice heated swimming pools and discovered, ventured out into the open water and discovered the benefits 
of it um, and the beauty of it really open water is magical it's very grounding back to nature and there's something very special about being in nature and good for the mental health mental health being one thing what about the physical aspects of cold water swimming we hear various reports some which say it tells you a power of good others which say if you jump into it without having acclimatized yourself it doesn't do you any good at all what's the balance view on that well there's two very different things there yes absolutely if you jump into cold water you can potentially suffer from cold water shock which the concern is when you get the involuntary gasp and it's a physiological response that you can't control and if you do that when your face is underwater well it's not very good you inhale water there are other physiological things that happen to your body to acclimatise, blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate, all those things increase. And until you've acclimatised and settled down, they can have an effect on you. But once you're in and you, you have acclimatised and they have settled down, then you can start to actually enjoy it. And then you get into the physical benefits of it because your body has had a fight or flight response initially with the cold water shock physiological response and then your body will produce the nice feel-good hormones and you will recover from that stress response which can benefit you mentally in every walk of life really if you find a stressful situation your body is then a bit more adapted to dealing with it but the other physical side of things when you're talking about health I'm not medically trained but there is a lot of research into your white blood cell count increases being in cold water so your immune system's boosted people talk about their Raynards getting better, others talk about their Raynards getting worse, I think that's very dependent on what sort of Raynards you have, again seek medical advice but also blood pressures women of a certain age hormones menopause you know can be cooling with your hot flushes but also it can help you regulate your hormones i've known people that have taken up cold water swimming and coming off their hrt completely again get medical advice but you know i think we are just discovering the the ice tip of the benefits for us in cold water And I think I saw something in the article which was written by Rachel for the magazine that when you initially get out, you actually feel like you were more comfortable in the water until you actually warm yourself up. Is that an acknowledged side effect of it all? Yes. Once you get out of the cold water, you can then suffer from after drop. So the first five to ten minutes after you get out of the cold, you're still feeling how you felt in the water, unless there's like a, a strong wind and then you get wind chill effect. But the inside of your body is still nice and warm because they're taking the blood from the extremities into your core. After you've got out, your body then realises and it will start to release that warm blood back out from your core and your core will potentially start to cool if it hasn't already. And then that's what you get, this after drop, and you get the shivers and you get the shakes. And if like the ice milers that were here and they're in for a long period of time, it can last for a long, long time. I remember doing some very cold swims last summer, sorry, last winter, and, you know, I would be cold, my toes would be cold for four hours after so it just takes a little while for the body to heat up and it's not an unpleasant experience I quite enjoy the shivering and the shaking but the coordination can go the brain can slow down a little bit but it's just you know it's a real balance and it's getting to know your own limits and your own experiences in the cold and you'll feel amazing for the rest of the day maybe a little bit tired but you know amazing and overall over day 
days and days of experience of doing it, you can just really feel the benefits. But yes, there are lots of different aspects to cold water and I would advise people to definitely do their research and get some help and advice. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned there the ice milers, which is not something that you've cooked up here in Shaftesbury. That's quite an established, what would you call it, a challenge, um, a club? What, what is it? Yeah, well, there was a chap called Ram Barkai who started the International Ice Swimming Association. I don't know all the history behind it, but he was an avid cold dipper and they set up this limit of five degrees and anything above that wasn't ice swimming it's cold water under 15 but five degrees and below is ice swimming and so they started I think just pushing their distances and they've limited it to anything that's recognized as a mile people obviously swim over and above a mile but it's only I think beyond that potentially you could get into the realms of dangerous so you don't want to encourage people to go too far I mean a mile for some people is is very dangerous but if you're trained and acclimatized then that's better he I think he set it up and it just grew and grew and grew and it became more popular and now there's world championships for ice swimming and they don't do ice miles at the championships they do 25 metres and 50 metres and 100 metres and I think the longest distance is maybe 400 metres. The ice mile is something you do outside of those championships and you do it at a venue that's with someone who's like myself, an observer that's recognised to sort of adjudicate that. Yeah, and you get the recognition get your name in the Hall of Fame and, and a nice ice miler jacket. But we should stress once again that this is something that you build up to because even if you're a strong swimmer and you could swim a mile in normal temperature water you would still be ill-advised to go and do it in very cold water. It's something I think uh, the article said something about building up to it over several seasons in some cases. Absolutely. The four guys that have been training here, and Liz who did her qualifier here a few weeks ago, they've been training for several years. So you swim through each winter and you build up and you lose your acclimatisation to a certain degree over the summer, but your brain will, it's like muscle memory, will remember and you get it back quicker. But it does require a lot of training. It is very tiring because it takes a lot of energy to cope in those temperatures and then deal with the after drop as well each time. But yes, it's, it's not something that someone can just go and do. It does require a lot of training a medical, an ECG to make sure that your heart can cope with them. And what do you offer here in Shaftesbury? Are there regular sessions for people that want to do cold water swimming? Yes, at the moment we're Saturday mornings, 9 till 11. There's four half-hour slots. You can book online if you look on the Shaftesbury Lido webpage. And it's just Saturday mornings at the moment, and I think it'll probably stay that way till the end of March, possibly into April. But obviously seasons to come, then we're open. If, if people want more, then we'll open for more. It's very much what I want to create in this environment is something that the people want. So I'm all ears. If people want to come to me, send me an email suggesting their ideas, the things that they'd like to see at the Lido, then absolutely it's what we want to provide, we want to provide for the community. And is it fairly popular? Oh, incredibly. I mean, last weekend, we, we were getting 80 people through the door on a Saturday morning, which is, which is fantastic. We could never have imagined it. We started off with, I think we had two sessions of 16 people to book for the trial, and now we've gone up to four sessions. Obviously, that will probably the number of sessions will reduce or the time will extend as the water gets warmer because people can stay in a little bit longer. But, yes, it's been phenomenal, and it's amazing to see so many people coming in and being so happy and grateful for being open and saying thank you all the time and I want to say thank you to them because they're creating it I'm just facilitating it and the Shaftesbury Town Council are facilitating it and they've done an amazing job incredible job of generating this interest and providing it for everyone it's just wonderful and in the longer term going away purely from the ice swimming 
the Lido, I mean, it's it's small, but it's very attractive. It's all very well cared for and, and nice and neat. What's the future here? Is it fairly sound? Yeah, hopefully. That's that's what we're, we're trying to do. We're trying to build it up and trying to make it a little bit more viable economically. It was saved a few years ago. There was questions as to whether they're even going to keep it. So we're very grateful that, that it has been kept. So, yeah, just watch this space. We've got big plans in the future if we can make it work. And I think it would benefit... Shaftesbury and the wider reaching the villages outside of Shaftesbury as well and it is a wonderful facility and it's got huge potential. Harriet thank you for talking to us today I can't promise that you'll see me on a Saturday morning anytime soon maybe June July time but uh, it's been great to hear about what you're doing here. Oh thank you very much it's been a pleasure. It was Woody Allen who famously described nature as one big restaurant and now that we're in very early spring that restaurant is throwing its doors wider and providing more food. Frog spawn, for instance. Some predators appreciate it, and more than a few appreciate the frogs that lay the eggs. Jane Adams has been lucky enough to find the first dollops of spawn in her wildlife pond, so she's hoping nothing comes along to eat them or the frogs. One predator that does appreciate a frog snack is the one she's written about in her article in February's BV magazine, The Polecat. I asked her how we'd recognise a polecat if we saw one, and how we'd tell it from its relatives, the weasels and the stoats. Well, they're quite similar, I think, because um, this is not the first time I have, I have written and talked about um, what is that they are part of the weasel family, and I, I have written about weasels and um, stoats before, and I think I must have a bit of a thing about long-bodied, short-legged hairy mammals (laughs) that are hard to see but that's basically what they are so if you imagine a sort of a weasel or a stoat they've got a very long body polecats are about well they can range between 35 and 50 centimeters long so they're not small i mean they're nowhere near as small as as say a weasel um the size of a small cat then maybe I guess so. Yes, not my cat, because mine's much bigger than that. But um, yes, I would say so. But the thing is, you're just not likely to see one, sadly, unless you see one dead at the side of the road, because they are incredibly secretive. Um, but, you know, you never know. You never know. And and uh, like pretty much, uh, Jane, like all UK predators, they're nocturnal. They get out hunting yes. at night. Yeah, they are nocturnal. They've got amazing night vision. And yes, they'll be hunting for things like small mammals, um, amphibians, as we've already said. They'll eat worms, um, but mainly, I mean, their their preferred food is rabbits. And they will actually live in, in old sort of rabbit warrens. Old as in previously uh, occupied, in, but yes. not currently occupied. Yes, any kind of den that has been dug out. Um, or trees that have hollowed out they'll or even in stone walls and things like that they'll hide away in those sort of places so they require a hole or a niche or something that has already been dug yeah i don't think they're great themselves at digging so they'll make use of what others have done yeah and and presumably just like stoats and weasels they're very bendy and flexible so they can kind of squeeze themselves into fairly small gaps can they Yes, I mean, they were, I mean, actually, domesticated ferrets were actually bred from polecats. 
So, you know, they, and if you imagine that domesticated ferrets were domesticated in order to use for hunting and usually sort of hunting for rabbits down rabbit holes. So, yes, incredibly twisty and, and um, fast and dangerous. You know, they've got a, a, a big bite on them uh, and usually will bite to the back of the neck. That's so, getting yeah, a bit gruesome now, aren't I? So, yes, well, we can't get away from these details, no, can't we? No. Can't we? When we're talking about predators. Um, so if they if they are potentially dangerous, obviously dangerous is something small that that might appear on yes. the menu. Um, but but we would might run a risk if we tried to approach one to if we saw one and tried to approach it too closely. I don't think that they would stick around. Um, <laughs> they would flee. If, they would flee, and they have a um, a very good way of keeping us away from them because they are really foul smelling. Um, usually, when they're sort of, it's a defence mechanism. Uh, there's a, a very pungent odour. Um, they've got a gland, an anal gland, that sort of exudes a musk if they're um, as a defence against things. So they were actually known as. Um, their Latin name, and I'm not going to be able to say this properly, is Mustella putorius, which means foul-smelling musk-bearer. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that would probably, if they were cornered, that would be their way that they would get away because they, they are so foul-smelling. And they're, they're not in any way, a shape or form, related to the, the, the stinky animal of North America, the skunk. I don't think so, but I mean, it is a common thing that animals do use as a defence, isn't it? Um, interestingly, the old English for them was foul mart, as in F O U L, whereas pine martins, which are obviously another of the weasel family, were called sweet mart because they didn't have this sort of musky, horrible smell. So that was what the sort of old English, they were, they were called the foul mart and the pine martins were sweet mart. And, and would, they, uh, would the polecat do what the American skunk does if you got too close? Would it actually squirt this uh, pungent odour <laughs> straight at you? No, I don't think it's... it's <laughs> I don't think so, no. I, from what I can gather, um, and I have never seen one, so I've never been in that position, I, it's just a smell that exudes from them, I think. So you would, if you if you happen to cross their path in the dead of night, you would You'd smell them rather it. than see them. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Now, in, in your article, Jane, you say that we in this country managed uh, pretty much to wipe polecats out, uh, blaming them for killing um, those imported game birds, non-native species, and chickens. Was that a mm. justifiable accusation? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I wouldn't put it past them. I expect they would kill chickens if they got the chance, like my, um, most sort of um, carnivorous animals would. But it's not their main prey. I mean, their main prey would be rabbits and small mammals. So, yes, I imagine they did kill them. But, you know, they were persecuted massively for for doing that and um for about 300 years villagers would actually be paid money in order to bring the bodies of of um, polecats in to sort of prove that they'd been killed because they were thought of as being something that would 
that would kill everything. Nowadays, ironically, um, farmers are quite pleased if they, or a lot of farmers are quite pleased if they have got polecats because they are incredibly good at keeping vermin down. So, and, and they always would have been. But, and, uh, and by vermin in this case, you mean rats and mice? Yes, rats and mice. Um, and of course, around, you know, they will sort of move in around a, a farmyard or somewhere like that if there's a good source of food for them. So, so if you're a farmer and you've got barns with any yeah. kind of grain or any, anywhere that rats like to hang out in, you, you should be welcoming a polecat. Yes, yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't even know that you'd got them. That would be the thing. But you may notice that you had less vermin, I suppose, or, or less rats and mice um, eating your grain. And short of putting up a camera trap, you wouldn't know, would you? No or, no, or or being like you, getting out at night and, yes. and watching. Well, even then, you know, I I imagine that it'd be incredibly difficult. They're similar to the other creatures in the weasel family, but then very different. So they don't have set territories. Cause, so it's actually really hard to track them. Um, whereas with with some of the other animals, they will leave their um, feces in certain places around their territory. Polecats don't do that, so it's it's really really hard to know whether you've got polecats in the area or not. So if they don't have territories, Jane, uh, how far might uh, an average polecat wander? I don't know. I think they tend to go more for where their food sources are. So you know, if there's a good food source, then they will stick to that area until it's gone, and then they'll move on to a different area. So they're not tied to a to a territory. And as now, as much, I think they are. They probably do have territories, but not in the same way that say badgers and 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 other animals like that would have. And their range is uh, extending, I believe, because they are actually on the increase. Why is that? Yes, I mean, now there are probably, well, they know that there are more polecats now than at probably any other time in the last hundred years. It's, it's mainly, after the First World War, they stopped being persecuted as much um, because the rabbit trapping, um, the end of the commercial rabbit trapping came and there were fewer predator controls as well so uh, as soon as they were given the chance to actually start spreading out again from their sort of strongholds which were mainly in Wales um, and a few in Herefordshire and Shropshire then they started spreading into other counties again and you know we have got them now in in Dorset definitely because I have seen sadly dead ones at the side of the road you, you've not yet managed to see a live one, have you? No, e- I Even you with your nocturnal well, habits. <laughs> I may have done. I used to keep a camera trap in my garden every single night um, for, for several years. And one, only one night, I was looking through the pictures and there was a strange creature which came through so quickly, but it had that sort of lolloping, long gate to it um, with a long body it looked like it had the bandit face because that's the a very distinctive thing with the polecats they have got this almost like a mask on their face that goes across their eyes and down to their nose so I, I'm putting I'm putting that down as a polecat and we aren't very far away from where other polecats have been 
seen and recorded in um, places like Bear Regis. Well, so every chance that you might see one on your... Uh, might, might capture a, uh, some footage of one on your camera trap. You never know. And I think, you know, there is a, a good chance that anybody could see one nowadays because they are spreading so much. The last survey that was done was 2014-15, but they've just started a new survey. So literally this year, they are now asking people that if they do see one, they sending records to the Vincent Wildlife Trust, who've now got a national polecat survey, um, which has literally started in about the last month. If you see dead ones at the side of the road and you think that it could be a, a polecat, um, then they're asking that you take a sort of a, a whisker or fur sample and send it to them. Or a they photograph. Well, that. yeah, the photograph is probably not going to... They are keen to have photographs, definitely. But one of the things that they're really interested in investigating this time with the survey is their genetics and their diet. Um, because sadly, they do mate with feral um, ferrets. So they're trying to work out whether the ones that are around in, in Dorset and elsewhere in the country are these sort of hybrids or whether they're purebred ones. Wildlife writer Jane Adams on polecats, which she's written about in this month's BV magazine. And that's all Terry and I have for you in this first episode in February 2024 of the BV podcast. Do join us again later in the month for episode two. Until then... It's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.